Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 through 1 through verse 19. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem as he was traveling. It happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I must show him. How much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Please pray with me once again. Father, we thank you for your word. For it is by your word that we regain sight. It's by your word that you lead us into understanding and, and how we might, might live, how we might grow, what we might believe. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us now. Uh, encourage us through your word and I pray that you would work in power. Lord, we are weak. Lord, we, we're, we're tired, feel physically weak, we're preoccupied with many things, but we know our weakness. And so we ask that you would work uh, despite our weaknesses so that you might receive all the more glory as you are worthy of all of it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Well, most children, I think, and many adults have what we would, would call a fear of the dark. And the reason for this is because in the dark, we don't know what's around us. We don't know what's out there. We don't know uh, if we're safe. We're not sure what we're actually blind to, what can see us that we can't see. And darkness, especially pitch blackness, can be a particularly terrifying thing. 
Especially, again, if you don't know what's around you. And this is why in Scripture, darkness is emblematic of ignorance, of fear, of sin. Whereas light in Scripture is symbolic of understanding. It's symbolic of righteousness. It's symbolic of joy. Uh, Post-Tenebrah Lux, after darkness light is what it means, was the Reformation motto. And it in particular became the motto of the city of Geneva where Calvin was uh, the leader. And the, the Reformation really was an irrepressible enlightenment as truth which had been withheld by the church from people for for centuries then began to explode onto the scene. It was a bringing to light old truths. And and the, the parallels with the Reformation and the early church that we're reading about in the book of Acts are phenomenal. For instance, both witnessed massive revivals with thousands of people coming to genuine faith and repentance. Both were international movements, not just confined to a small people group, but they, it crossed national borders in many Many tribes, many tongues, many peoples embraced the truth. Uh, both movements were started by people who were severely persecuted. And the leaders themselves, many of them were martyred. And most importantly, both were begun by truth shining forth into spiritual darkness. We'll see how often I have to, how often I have to do that <laughs> with the breeze. But the book of Acts, it records really this, this, this new, I wouldn't call it a reformation, but the beginning of an enlightenment uh, as it breaks forth the light of the gospel of Christ. And chapter 9 in particular does this visibly in the remarkable conversion of Saul of Tarsus who came to be known, of course, as the Apostle Paul. And I've entitled this message, After Darkness Light, because really the whole chapter of Acts chapter 9 is about a breaking forth of light, going from darkness to light. And just, just note, as you, as you scan that chapter, all the verbiage around blindness or sight or seeing, light, it's emphasizing how Saul goes from a, a place of spiritual darkness to a place of spiritual light. As Ananias comes and lays hands upon him. And as he's, as he's exposed to the light of Christ in his uh, Christophany. And I think the, the best way to break down this section we'll look at is really into two parts. The first is chapters chapter 9 verses 1 through 10. And that's of course where... Uh, Saul is seen in his spiritual darkness. And then the second part is verses 11 through 19, where Ananias comes to bring to him spiritual light. Now, the, the conversion of Saul is significant, uh, not just because of who Saul became, the Apostle Paul, but because of whom Saul represents. Even the name Saul harkens back to King Saul, who of course, persecuted King David 
all over uh, the land of Israel. And like this, this uh, previous Saul, this Saul is persecuting the son of David, Jesus Christ, through the persecution of the church. And the, and the first time we saw Paul actually, or Saul, I'll use it probably interchangeably, just out of habit. The first time we see him is when he's uh, overseeing the stoning of Stephen, the, the church's first martyr. And chapter 9 then continues Saul's rampage against Christ and his persecution of the church. Verses 1 to 2, if you want to look there. It narrates Saul's open hostility towards Christ and his followers. And this is remarkable because neither Christ nor his followers have committed any crimes. I mean, they haven't done anything wrong. The only thing they've done is proclaim Christ as the only way of salvation. In fact, this is why in verse 2... The church or uh, Christianity is called the way because they recognize Christ was the way, the truth, the light. He was the only way a person could be saved. Well, this was unacceptable to Saul. And so he sought to to crush this movement. And although not every person is as hostile as Saul was before they come to Christ. Every person before they come to know Christ, is at some level at enmity with God. And we show this in just choosing to do what we want rather than what he wants. When we choose to live for our own interests rather than his. Some people would even actually deny that they would have any hostility, especially young people, children. But any time that we bristle against something that God has called us to do, It's a sign of our rebellious, self-centered hearts. When the Bible commands us to love God with all of our being more than anything else. And we think, well, don't I love him enough? Like the rich young ruler in uh, Luke 18, who, who went to Christ and he said, I've obeyed all the commands from my youth. And then Christ just asked him to do one thing. This is basically to give up everything you have and come follow me and you will have eternal life. But that was one thing that too much for him. And he walked away from salvation. Showing that he valued money more than God. He was convinced he was a righteous, godly man, but in his heart, he actually followed a different God. We show this hostility towards God uh, when a a driver on the road does something stupid and we feel anger welling up inside of us. And and when our anger supersedes what we know to be right, we go ahead and disobey. We curse rather than give a blessing. Or when you're surfing the net and you come across an invitation to look at something you know you shouldn't be looking at. And you justify it because of the passions within you. That's rebelling against God. And it might not even seem evil to you. Many of the things that I think people do don't seem evil. In fact, they might even appear to be righteous. But the fact that we're making such such choices when God's word tells us that it's wrong shows that we care more about what we want than God. Just think about this. No. Very few, at least, adulterers think that what they're doing is evil. 
They, they think, I'm, I'm loving this other person. They're just doing what seems right to them, what feels best. But I think their spouse would have a very different opinion. It's very easy to convince ourselves that we're righteous where God's opinion would be very different. It may not seem like hostility from our vantage point, but from God's it is. He calls us to love him with all our being, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And again, we might even believe like Saul in this passage that what we're doing is righteous. Saul was persecuting the church, trying to drive it it out of existence. And he was convinced that he was doing God's will, which just shows us we can be so blind to our hostility that we think that what we're doing is good. The Bible says that men are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Romans 8 says this, for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And, And really, this is the spiritual condition of every single person before they come to know Christ. All of us were born at hostility to God, even if we didn't realize it. Because again, we did what we want. What we wanted meant more to us than even what God's word would call us to. And what Saul of Tarsus needed to realize is that despite what he considered religious devotion, his heart was actually spiritually blind. And he was opposing the one he actually thought he was serving. In attacking the church, he was attacking Christ. And in attacking Christ, he was actually attacking God, whom he thought he loved more than anything else. In fact, that was why he justified attacking the church. And, and we need to recognize that if God had not intervened, if Christ had not showed up on this Damascus road and, and appeared before Saul, Saul would never have repented. He never would have turned. Saul was not seeking Christ except to drive out his memory from existence. He hated Christ. He wasn't searching for truth because he was convinced he already knew the truth. He was as blind as a bat. He was as hard as stone. God had to intervene in this man's life. Just as God has to intervene in every single one of our lives. None of us would turn and trust in Christ unless he first opens our eyes to the reality of who he is and how desperately we need him. Saul needed to have his eyes open to the fact that he was spiritually blind. And so God does this in the most vivid way possible. He physically actually blinds him to help Saul see he doesn't know where he's going. He needs to be led in in a very humbling way. This is a man who in in, in rage and the imagery in verse one is that that he's like a a soldier on a war horse marching off to battle to, to, to throw Christians into prison. He he's confident he's in the right. And he is severely humbled to the fact that the people around him need to lead him by the hand to bring him to Damascus. And this is mercy. 
And, and likewise, we need to realize sometimes God needs to use severe measures to open our eyes to see our need for him. Because until we're convinced of our need for God, we're going to continue to go on making a mess of our lives and, and hurting other people. And God might even need to, to use horrific suffering in our life to help us really understand the condition of our lives. In fact, we might, we might even be wondering, why, why is God picking on me? Why does God allow me to suffer? Why did he take so-and-so from me? What, why, why do I have to lose this when so many other wicked people get away with their wickedness? And our hearts are, can be tempted to become bitter against God because we don't, we're not getting what we think we deserve. But God is in these things trying to wake us up to the, to the fact of how desperately we need him. The very fact that our hearts would turn against him rather than run to him is evidence of how corrupt we are. That, that when we face suffering, rather than crying out to him for help, we instead get angry at him as if he owes us something. God has to break into our our hearts to help us see the the wickedness in it. And that was the case of Saul here. Verse three, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. We have to see that God intervened in Saul's life in this thunderous way because of his mercy, because of his love, because of his kindness. Saul needed to be knocked off his high horse and led to Damascus because he needed to see how desperate he actually was. So that his heart would be prepared to receive the news that Ananias is going to bring. And that brings us to the second part of this chapter where Ananias brings to Saul some spiritual light in his blindness. And what's remarkable, I think, is about that stands out to me is actually the, the story here is actually no longer about Saul. The focus is about Ananias. God comes and speaks to Ananias, just like Christ came and spoke to Saul on the Damascus Road. And it's remarkable because God, when he conf- when Christ confronted Saul, he then and there could have easily caused him to be born again and commissioned him to go and preach the good news to the Gentiles. But he doesn't. Instead, he just blinds him. And then he, ha- and then he speaks to him in a vision and, and, and calls Ananias to go to him. Now, why would he do that? It's because he wants Ananias to participate in this incredible work of salvation. God doesn't need Ananias, but he calls Ananias to go so that Ananias can can take part in this miracle. And God still chooses to use the means of Christians to bring other people to salvation. He chooses he could, if he wanted in his sovereignty, just cause us to be born again by people just simply reading on their own or. Uh, I mean, even if he wanted to, he could just break into our hearts without us hearing anything at all. But he chooses to use people and he chooses to use the proclamation of the gospel 
in order for people to be saved. And we can see from Ananias' calling some principles here that we can embrace as we seek also to share the gospel with others. And the first is that in order to be effective evangelists, we need to be willing to put ourselves at risk. Because notice that when, when God first addresses Ananias, Ananias responds by saying, here I am, Lord. I mean, there's a sense of he's ready. And quite likely, he he's, knows that he's quoting Isaiah when God spoke to him in Isaiah 6. Because these are the exact words that were spoken by Isaiah when God commissioned him to go preach to rebellious Israel 700 years before. Again, when, when God appeared before Isaiah, this happened and he, he had this vision and then God asked, he says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? So Isaiah responds, here I am, I'll go, send me. And like Ananias and Isaiah, most believers, I think, when they, when they, when they consider the need of the gospel for people to be saved, they, are, they also are willing to say, here I am, send me, I'll go, I'll be used. Until they consider the risks. Because it was after Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Isaiah then hears what he actually signed up for. God tells him in Isaiah 6, 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their eyes heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And despite the fact that this was what Isaiah was called to, he was faithful to fulfill his commission. He did do this to the extent that he was hunted down by the king of Israel at the time. Captured and he was executed by being sawn in half. And when God tells Ananias here to go to speak to Saul of Tarsus, Ananias quite likely is thinking he's going to have the same end as Isaiah did. And that's why he responds in verse 13. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call in your name. Ananias realizes that in being called to go to this man, he very well may be being called to his death. And yet he still chooses to go. And if he had not gone, he would have missed out on, on taking part in one of the most incredible salvation stories in all of history. He could have he would have missed out on leading the chief of sinners, as, call, as Paul calls himself in 1 Timothy. He would have missed out on leading the, the chief of sinners to the one whom he would love more than anything else. I mean, some of us are eager to, to, to have our, our single friends meet with, with other single friends so they can get married because we love the joy of seeing two people fall in love. I mean, imagine being able to introduce Apostle Paul to Christ, the one he said later on, for me to live is, is Christ and to die is gain. I would rather depart and be with Christ than, than stay at home in this body, he said in Second Corinthians. 
mean, there was nothing that Paul loved more than Christ. And, and Ananias, if he would have, if he would have come up with some excuse of why he didn't want to go, because of his fear, he would have missed out. And, and sure, if Ananias would have held back in fear, God would still have accomplished his purpose. He would have sent somebody else, I'm sure. And Ananias could have just rationalized, you know, God, I got, I got a family at home. I got mouths to feed. I have people who are depending upon me. If I end up dying because you're sending me to this man, who's going to care for them? He could have easily rationalized that. And likewise, when, when we're called to reach out to unbelievers of the gospel, the reality is you might be risking your job. More and more so as our culture moves in, a, in an ever-darkening direction. You also might be maligned, ridiculed. You might even get sued. In some cases, you might be physically assaulted. And, and so it would be very easy for us to rationalize that this is just not, this is not my opportunity. This, this must be for somebody else because other people are depending upon me. And the only difference, as one soldier once said, the only difference between a hero and a coward is not the fear that one feels. It's what one does with the fear that makes the difference. What matters is not how we dream we're going to respond when we're put in terrifying situations. What matters is how we actually respond. Right? All of us in this comfortable place, we're surrounded by people we love, can dream and imagine that we're going to be faithful in those fearful places. When those opportunities arise and, and there's great risk. And we need to recognize that what matters is not what we assume we're going to do. It's what we actually do. And so what is, what's going to keep us, what's going to, what's going to drive us when we are putting ourselves at risk to go and share the gospel with hard-hearted people? Well, I think we can see some reasons here, even what bolstered Ananias to go. God tells Ananias that he had particularly chosen Saul. And he would even use him to reach the Gentiles. Right? So you can see that's going to greatly help Ananias. If he knows, hey, God's going to save this person, he's going to, in his confidence, go. And likewise, we can have confidence in God's word that God does desire to save people, even the hardest hearted people. And he actually does. Just look around you. Some of you, if you'd have known one another before you were saved, would never have thought that person would have been saved. Because of their bitterness, because of the, the darkness that defined us before our eyes were opened. Another reason that Ananias goes is because he's confident of God's power to transform hearts. The gospel really does have the power to transform the most hard-hearted people like Saul. Now, we can say that, but do you really believe it? Do you really believe 
that 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 your disobedient, hard hearted, rebellious adult child who who mocks you and is turned again and again from your 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 pleas to, to, to read the Bible or to just talk about spiritual things. Do you really believe that God one day could break into that person's life? Even after 17 years of pleading with them. And that that person could then be saved and eventually become the greatest theologian in history. Well, that's what happened to Augustine of Hippo. His mother, Monica, prayed and pleaded for 17 years for her lecherous son. And on account of that, he was eventually saved. And then even later, his father, who was just as evil, came to trust in Christ. Could you imagine that uh, your foul-mouthed neighbor, who just, you don't even want your kids to be around him because it's just, he's spewing out horrific things. Can you imagine that one day, because of your bold witness, he would become the best-selling Christian writer of all time. The book that sold more copies than any other. Like John Bunyan. He was saved because he overheard a woman, a, very, a fairly wicked woman, say that, that his, his, his words were more foul than anybody else she knew. It opened his eyes to his evil. Could you imagine that your rabidly atheistic colleague who's doing everything he can to, to disprove the validity of Christianity, its emptiness, that it's just a crutch. One day, because of just your, your patience and your, your willingness to engage in rational conversation, that that man would become the greatest apology of the century, apologist of the century, as was the case with C.S. Lewis. Because of his friendship with other college professors. But the reality is God's saving hard-hearted sinners all the time. And I know it's hard to see that and remember that, yes, that person in your life, that it's just, even after years, could, is just so hardened they would never trust. That, that there's, never, there's never a point that's too far for God. And we need to hold to that. And that's what we need to hold to when... We have to be in those difficult conversations. God can still work. And as God tells Ananias in verse 15, Paul would be a chosen instrument of his to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And he would show him how much he must suffer for his name's sake. And really that verse 15 is basically the summary of the rest of the book of Acts. As, as Paul goes forth and proclaims to Jews and Gentiles that salvation is found in Christ. And in every place he goes, he suffers. It was one experience of suffering after another. In fact, about a decade later after this, Paul would write to the Corinthians and tell them, five times I received at the hands 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, 
There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He would suffer greatly. But he would do it also joyfully because of the message with which, with which he was bringing. And, and not everybody who, who becomes a Christian is going to suffer as much as the Apostle Paul did. But none of us should assume that we won't suffer. In fact, we should assume it's, there's going to be quite a cost. And in order to be effective evangelists, again, we need to be willing to take risks. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not meant to be safe. It's as dangerous to choose to follow Christ and get baptized as it is to enlist in the United States military. And we need to recognize that. And so when it is hard and we are put in harm's way, not to think something's wrong. This is part of the plan. This is what we're called to. And and, and, and Ananias recognizing that God will still use us when we are willing to put ourselves at risk and use us to, to, to transform even the hardest hearts. That's what bolsters Ananias to go forth. And so he arrives at the place where Saul is praying and, and while Saul is, is shrouded in darkness because of his blindness and he's pleading, trying to understand what God is doing, it's when Ananias approaches him and explains to him why he's come. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned earlier that this passage really is paralleling Isaiah 6. And one of the sweetest things that we got to notice about this is that, again, recall that Isaiah was commissioned to go and preach to people so that they would become blind and hardened. And Ananias, though, is commissioned by God to go to open blind eyes and to soften hard hearts. And that's very purposeful. The conversion of Saul is emblematic of God's promise to reverse this blinding. Now he is sending people out because Christ has paid the price. Now he is sending people out to share this good news so that that. Blind eyes would be opened, that hard hearts would be softened. You might recall that at the end of Jesus' public ministry in John 12, Jesus gave this final speech where he exhorts Israel to walk in the light. And John's note on Jesus' final sermon in in, in chapter 12 is actually what's happening here. Go ahead and turn there, if you would. John chapter 12, remarkable parallels with what's happening to Saul. John 12, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, men, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men 
rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come into the world to judge, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself has sent me and has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And Jesus' point is that Israel is completely blind to who Jesus is and what Jesus is saying. And he would later explain this again as as Saul comes to understand the hardness of Israel's heart. Saul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. To this day, whenever Moses read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who's the spirit. Again, Saul's blindness was removed because he got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opened his eyes to believe in the Christ. And the text says that it was like scales fell from his eyes. Again, this is emblematic of the fact that as, as, as an Israelite, he couldn't see the truth. Because there was a veil blocking the way. But the veil was removed when the Spirit came. As was promised would happen. And the same is true of all of us. Again, we're all born in darkness and sin. But the veil is removed when we're born again by the Holy Spirit. And the effects of a person being born again are obvious. They care now more about pleasing God than pleasing themselves. They are far more concerned about displeasing God and sinning than they are about their sin being found out. They want to hear truth more than just want to be affirmed for who they are and what they think. And they don't see Christ as a, a means of gaining their ambitions. Rather, they, they see themselves as a means for Christ's ambitions. They see themselves as a commodity for him to use for his purposes. And again, let, we'll look at the example of Paul placed before us. Notice, how did he respond after the scales fell from his eyes? It says he got up. He was baptized. Showing his faith in Christ. And then he went out and immediately proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. Verse 19. For some days he was at the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. His previous hostility against Christ is completely transformed. Toward Now he is completely devoted to Christ. He is zealous for Christ. And again, it's because there was a genuine transformation. He didn't just have a new philosophy. He didn't just gain some new insight. His heart was transformed. His loves were transformed. He no longer wanted to live for himself, but wholly for Christ. 
For him to live was Christ now. And even dying, he saw as gain. Brothers and sisters, being born again is not just understanding that Jesus is God. It's not just understanding that you need to be saved. To be born again means your whole life is transformed. To the extent that anything that God says in his word, you want to obey. No matter what the cost would be, because he's your God. And you love him with all your being. And you might think, well, nobody would love God that much. Well, it's true. Until their hearts are transformed. True believers want to. Yes, we struggle. We fight, but we hate that. We don't justify it. We don't, we don't justify our sin. We confess our sin and we get up and we keep pressing on. We're not satisfied to just be mediocre Christians, but we, we, we run as those who are trying to win the race. Because our hearts have been changed. We don't just believe that Jesus is God, but we live for Christ. Have you experienced such a transformation? Has God actually broken into your life, laid his hands upon you, opened your blind eyes so that now you see his glory, that you want to live wholly and completely for him? Does obeying him mean more to you than just getting your own way? That you would be willing to live the rest of your life in a very difficult circumstance. If it meant that's what God wanted you to do. What keeps people from submitting their life to Christ? I think there's many things, but this is what the Bible says. John 3. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And again, the fact of the matter is the Bible says this describes everyone before they're saved. Romans 3 says, there's no one righteous, no, not one, no one who seeks to please God. But this is the good news, that despite the darkness, despite the evil of our hearts, despite our selfishness, God still desires to save, to open us up, to wake us up to our condition, just like he did here with Saul of Tarsus, who hated him to the fact that to the effect that he was persecuting the church. And again, you need to understand the problem is not that God is disappointed in us and therefore he's rejecting us and holding us at arm's length. The problem is not that God won't accept us. The problem is that we reject God because we like the darkness better. Anybody who is not a follower of Christ loves their darkness more than they love Christ. And that could be darkness in any form. But if you're ready to change that today, because now you see, you see that that's the condition of your heart. And you want to give your life to him. I would say do that without delay. 
And I'd love to speak with you more about that following the service, if you so desire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of abounding in loving kindness and mercy, that you love to show kindness. You love to forgive. And Lord, that there's, there's no sin, no amount of sin. Lord, that you're not willing to, to, to completely forgive, to cover up, to throw into the depths of the sea. All because of Christ. And Christ, we thank you that, that you were willing to pay the price that we deserve. Lord, I pray that you continue to open our eyes to understand the greatness of that price so that we would be stirred up with a fervor and a zeal to want to share the good news of salvation and forgiveness of sins with everyone we know. And give us wisdom to know how we can improve, how we can become better evangelists, better proclaimers of the truth, so that we would be lights in this darkened area of the world. And so that we would see more hard-hearted people come to treasure you and to love you. Lord, we want to be the means of salvation. And so we ask that you would use us and stir us up to be faithful, even in the face of great, great risk. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.